بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين والصحابة الأكرم وتابعين بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وعلينا معمفين برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله الحمد لله that we have reinstating the monthly sisters haraka and um, the reason we're using a microphone this time is that there was a request to live stream it so we will live stream it um, I'm hoping that the live stream is not relied upon uh, it's better to come in person and to be present if possible um, and I understand we will in the future sessions be offering uh, babysitting or no that is the plan it's offered downstairs so if there is <clears throat> a need for that, that is uh, something that we're offering. And I was um, contemplating uh, the text that we're going to be looking at, thinking about different options. And um, I have decided upon a text um, partially based upon the, the feedback that was given and then also just because of the sheer benefit in it, um, is a, a text written by uh, Imam Aramli. And that is titled Bughyat al-Ikhwan wa fi riyadat al-Sibyan and um, which could roughly uh, be translated as um, the desire of our brothers in relation to the raising of children and um, this book has been tra uh, commented on by one of the great scholars of Hadramaut Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Basudan and fortunately we have a, a very good translation by Sidi Abdul Aziz Ahmed from Glasgow um, that he has titled Educating Children and the subtitle is Classical Advice from Modern Times and so um, I spoke to uh, Altar from Mecca Books and there will be about 20 copies for sale in the, the Muqasid bookstore and so I, I highly highly encourage everyone to get a copy of this book not just for our class but to have one of these to have this on your shelf. This is a a very important book and his subtitle summarizes its theme classical advice for modern times and the Sidi Abdul Aziz is someone who has a lot of experience in uh, education and so in his what he does is he translates the text and then he comments on it and some of his commentary is taken from the Arabic commentary of the Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Basudan that I mentioned and that then he adds as well from various other authors that he has read and other research in the Western tradition taking what is good from it and that including it here. So today we're just going to really be introducing the topic and approaching it I really want before we go into the text itself everyone to have a copy uh, of this work and this really is a topic of the utmost importance and even though we're speaking of it in the con we'll be speaking of it in the context of children and raising children educating children training children um, but also is that if we are wise we will see how this applies to our own self as well and not just the various children that we are trying to raise in the very best of ways um, so this is uh, what we will be doing, inshallah ta'ala, and um, now that we've identified a text, hopefully by next month, <clears throat> we can have some type of a syllabus that will outline for us uh, what section we will be taking uh, each session, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. But uh, I'm actually really excited to read this book. This has been a book I've wanted to read and study uh, for a long time, and just a very brief uh, disclaimer, um, we will be doing this together. This is not uh, someone who has mastered this in any way whatsoever. This is someone who is that trying to do their best given the insanity of the time in which we live and trying to raise children in it. Trying to raise children in our time um, personally is one of the most difficult things that I've ever faced in my entire life. Is You have so many desires and hopes for your children and what you want them to aspire to be uh, in the deen and in the dunya and all of the challenges that are out there that get in the way of these hopes that you have for your children 
And um, one of the most beneficial statements that I've ever read, ever, is a statement that Sayyidina Ali al-Khawas said to Imam Abdul Wahhab al-Sha'rani, his student. He said, لا تعتردوا على الله في أولادكم لا تعتردوا على الله في أولادكم Do not oppose the divine decree of Allah in, in relation to your children. And that is a very hard thing to do, to put into practice. Why? Just in general, submitting to the divine decree is hard. Um, and it's easier when it comes to things that like natural disasters, the weather, things like this, that you, there's no human agency involved. It's more difficult to submit to the divine decree when it comes from people because they have freedom of choice. And it's very easy just to notice the people in it and to forget that everything is from Allah. But it's most difficult when it comes to your children because they are a product of you and your spouse. That they are in a sense part of you. They have your same DNA and that you've been there from the very, very, very beginning. And so it's, it's probably the greatest challenge of all is how to submit to the divine decree in relation to your children. And submitting to the divine decree never means that you don't do everything that it is that you can do to help them. No, they're two sides of the same coin. While you simultaneously do everything that it is that you can do, and we're going to be getting into this, the general obligation of the parent is to preserve the fitrah, the natural disposition of the child. To preserve it and to, to direct it so that it takes on religious meaning as the child grows older and older. And um, that having said that, there will definitely be obstacles that lie in the way. And so that if you do your part and you do everything that it is that you can combining the knowledge component or you could even say theory and then doing your best to put that into practice knowing that you're going to fall short probably in both realms in terms of the knowledge component and in terms of the putting into practice component the practical component but you still have to do your best and while you do your best at the same time, you have to submit to Allah. Because if Allah Ta'ala gave us the story of the Prophet Noah, Nuh in the Quran, and we know that his child, that ultimately was drowned because he didn't listen to his father. If there's examples of children of prophets in the Quran going astray, then what about us? You could have someone, you could have someone from the kibar of the awliya, and his child goes astray. And that person did everything right outwardly to raise that child in the very best of ways. But in the end, people make their choices. And generally speaking, that when you raise your children in the best of ways, they turn out well, generally speaking. But sometimes you do everything you can and there's only so much you can do. And part of the frustration is balancing these really high hopes that we have in our children, these great things that we want them to achieve, and that the religious component is much, much more important than the worldly component. And that's what should inform the worldly component, in fact. The worldly component in and of itself, disconnected from the religious component, is of very little use. That every that parent on earth for the most part, except at rare exceptions of people that have their fitrah completely warped, want good for their children in a worldly sense. But what differentiates a believer from someone who does not believe is someone who that wants the religious component to truly be the goal that then informs the worldly component. And in the end, we don't really see them as a dichotomy. We should encourage our children to be successful in every meaning of the word successful. But for us, is that our definition of success is to have our worldly success be defined by our religious success. So when you understand success correctly, then there's no differentiating between the two. 
you only have to differentiate between the two when people have a misunderstanding of what success really is. And if they think that some type of worldly success detached from uh, uh, religious success insofar as what it is that you're doing is something that is unlawful or the way you went about to attain that thing is unlawful or the means along the way was unlawful or something of this nature or the character that you exemplified before, during or after in these ways and others are ways that it can become detached from the religious context and then not truly be a sign of success. So that saying, understanding the statement of Sheikh Adil Khawas does not mean that we don't try hard. On the contrary, we do. But just look at the sheer number of books about raising children. The sheer number of books. And most concerned parents, by the time their child is maybe one or two, is that they have three or four, if not five books on the shelf. And sometimes there's conflicting advice, conflicting approaches, conflicting theories. And sometimes there's a big gap between what is read on the pages and what you're able to do in your practical life. And that there is good in still reading these books, no doubt. Um, however, it also, we, t- to a certain degree, it's similar to books on leadership in that there are so many different books on leadership that you can drown in the sheer amount of information that's out there and not know how to run that your company, because usually there's there to be written for people that are running companies. Um, and that some theorists point this out, that how much benefit is there really in reading all of these works if it's not applicable to your particular circumstance? And again, it's not that you shouldn't read these books. It's fine to, but the key is to understand your particular circumstance. So for instance, that someone, uh, like in our situation, where we have parents, uh, we have family members that are not Muslim, whereas another family where their entire family is Muslim, there is a huge difference between those two different circumstances. Huge that what your children will be exposed to for the most part, and again, Muslim families themselves differ. A very practicing Muslim family is different than a family that is not practicing, and that you have then the nuclear family and then the extended family. All of these different factors change drastically how it is that you have to go about raising your children. And again, the principles that oftentimes remain the same But how do you apply those principles in your particular circumstance? This is really the key. And um, this is why what we hope from these sessions, and again, this is part of this tangent, is that this disclaimer, that not teaching this class as an expert of it, I'm teaching it as a way of some, this is a, we're studying this together, is basically what I'll say. We are studying this together. This is a text that... um, has been studied traditionally, and it was a very important part of traditional curriculums to this day in places in the Muslim world like Hadramot and others. And so it still is important, and that the text is actually, um, the commentary is on a text that is based off a section in Hujjat al-Islam Imam Ghazali's Ihyal al-Muddin. So the principles stem back 900 to 1,000 years or more. And again, we're not going to be able to implement them as they were implemented 900 years ago or 4 or 5 or even 200 years ago or even 50 years ago. But we want to understand what those principles were and to see what from those principles still remained for our particular time and then what else do we need to add to start the conversation of that then to really figure out what it is that we need to be doing to that raise our children in the best of ways. And so we were doing this together, but one last closing statement on uh, this idea of not opposing the divine decree in our children. The other side of that coin is that you submit to Allah. 
And sometimes we cause ourselves unnecessary stress because we either try to micromanage our children or we try to control their destiny in a way that we're really not supposed to. And learning when to be hands-on, learning when to be hands-off, learning what to focus on and what not to focus on, what to correct and what to overlook, what to be extremely firm on and what to be very loose on. All of these things differ from family to family, from child to child within the family. And that really one of the part of the, the knowledge that we'd want to really let put into conversation with many of these principles is the knowledge of temperaments, understanding your child's temperament. And there are books, and again, we can't do everything, not everything's in one book. This is a starting point. And um, maybe that we eventually add to uh, the list other books that say, for instance, we can read um, uh, that in the meantime. And if people are excited about this book, and from them, there's not going to be any pressure on my end, uh, that they want to have a class more often to get through it quicker, I'm open to that idea. But I leave that uh, to you. If, if that, relates upon, that depends upon your time availability and um, how serious that you really want to get through this book. So, having said that, this is what we're going to be spending these upcoming sessions doing, is inshallah exploring this topic of that educating our children, that rearing our children, raising our children, inculcating virtue in our children, all of these other blessed words and concepts that relate to <clears throat> child rearing and these blessed children that we have. And we're going to start today <clears throat> with the translator's uh, introduction, inshallah ta'ala, and then we will that, uh, proceed in the, the next session uh, with the actual beginning of the book. And for those that came in, uh, that we're going to be looking at a text titled Educating Children, um, and uh, that will be available, inshallah, if not by the end of class today, uh, very soon, inshallah, today or tomorrow. And you can uh, purchase a copy in the, the Al-Maqasid bookstore, which is run by Mecca Books. Taib, so this is the translator's introduction in Sidi Abdul Aziz uh, Fredericks is uh, uh, a close friend of mine. Um, in fact, at the very first time that I um, that went on a teaching trip was arranged by someone he was working with at the time by the name of Naeem Ali. Uh, he's based in Glasgow, um, Scotland, and he's a student of Habib Ahmad Haddad and a very, very blessed person. Um, he was raised in South Africa, and people think he's a convert because he took on the name Fredericks. But this is a part of the whole understanding of what happened in South Africa. Um, he's actually not a convert. He's actually a Sayyid, a Rafa'i Sayyid from Ahl Bayt. And um, that during the apartheid period, his last name was changed to Fredericks, and so um, that anyhow, he's a, a very blessed person and someone who is, is doing really amazing work. Um, that he is, uh, he has a, a number of institutions that he works with, and um, that offers all different types of humanitarian service. May Allah Taala bless him and protect him, and preserve him. So. He starts by saying, After Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, the verse in the Qur'an in Surah Al-Duha, But the bounty of your Lord rehearse and, and, and proclaim. And so that he's going to, to speak about the blessings of Allah Ta'ala upon him. And uh, this is a, a verse that we should all put into practice. And that the ni'mah of Allah Ta'ala upon us is that it's a good thing to proclaim there's a hadith that, that says, "Inna Allah la yuhib an yara athra ni'mati ala abda." Indeed, that Allah loves to see the traces of His blessing upon His servant. And so, um, that if that one is given that nice, uh, given wealth and given abundance and given blessings, is that one of the great intentions that we can make that when one has a nice car or wears nice clothes and so forth and so on, is to do so solely for the sake of Allah. Because Allah has given you that blessing too, 
let manifest that blessing solely for his sake and proclaim it. So he says, all praise and thanks are due to Allah, who blessed his servants with innumerable opportunities, bounties, and privileges. If I were to attempt to enumerate and proclaim the bounties Allah granted me, among the first would be my two healthy children. I would also recall opportunities he provided for me to study. I attended the classes of great men like Habib Ahmed Mashur al-Haddad, Al-Habib Abdul Qadir al-Saqaf, and Sayyid Muhammad bin Alawi al-Maliki. I received the care and attention of my loving parents, my teachers, and spiritual guides, including Al-Habib Abdurrahman al-Khitami, who was from Kenya, from the island of Lamo, off the coast of Kenya. Their guidance and direction were blessings, the reality of which only began to become clear once they departed from this world, leaving us to deal with overwhelming emptiness and yearning. So you can see here how he, from the very beginning, that mentions the blessings of Allah Ta'ala upon him, and he mentions specifically his children and his teachers. <clears throat> and there is a correlation, no doubt, between the raising of children and the raising of spiritual children. And so that when someone has teachers, the relationship, the teacher-student relationship, is a familial-type relationship. And that... This even in relation to the Prophet's wives, what are they called? Ummahat al Mu'minin. Allah says in the Quran, The Prophet has more right to the believers than they do than their own self. And his wives are their mothers. And so that the wives of the Prophet are like our mothers, not just in the legal sense, but in the caring sense, in the that looking after us in the way that they nurtured the ummah by that conveying the sunnah of our Prophet Sallallahu that in its entirety, in all of its complexities to that generation of companions and then to this day and age is that how many that legal rulings and that various sunnahs of our Prophet and character traits do we know that have been transmitted to us by the blessed wives of our Prophet Sallallahu Without that component, we would not have the complete picture of the Rasul Generally speaking, when people go into their homes, we don't know what happens. But we have a detailed description of how our Prophet was وسلم, at home. Yeah, because is that his blessed wives described that to us. And that they, they, uh, they say is that your, your fathers are three. Your fathers are three. And um, that one of those is your, obviously your biological father, and then whoever becomes your father-in-law, and then your teacher, is that they are like fathers to you. And when Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran in relation to our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Muhammad, our Prophet Sallallahu was not the father of any one of you. Uh, not, not the father of any one of your men, but he was the messenger of Allah and he was the seal of prophets. Imam al-Qurtubi says in his tafsir, Lakin kana mithil al-ab. But he was like a father. And what is meant by he wasn't your father, meaning is that this is as legal implications of ibtal hukmat tabanni. That the uh, Pre-Islamic Arabs had a custom is that if they would adopt a child that child would inherit from them and this is something that Islam that nullified and there's only certain people that actually inherit from the estate of uh, the deceased parent um, but the Imam Al-Qurtubi says he was like a father and then in a hadith our Prophet says indeed that I am to you like a father to his children I teach you and so the Prophet spoke of teaching, he spoke of his father -like, fatherly like connection with his Ummah in the context of teaching. Indeed, that I am like a father to you, that I teach you. And there's no doubt is that when you've that experienced the difference, I grew up in schools in this country from an early age. In school was just something you did. I know there's people that have had teachers in the past that have really affected them. And, 
even in public schools. And that's surely possible and that's a good thing and we have to recognize that. But the vast majority of our teachers, right, did we really have a relationship with them? It's kind of like, oh, got to go to school, got to do what I got to do and move on with life. There wasn't this connection, at least for me. I'm speaking from, and I think most people could probably relate to that. And then becoming Muslim, it's like, whoa, you have a totally different relationship with your teachers. Totally different. You actually deeply love them. You actually experience that a love of your teachers, that like something you've never felt in your life before. And a connection to them and wanting to emulate them and to that wanting to be close to them. Something that was so far-fetched that was not even in someone's mind that at least in mine in middle school or in high school or in college. And this is a great blessing. And this is what they do though. Is that they nurture you. They look after you. They are fatherly in that sense. Just the way you have the loving father and the loving mother that raised those children, ideally, in the best of ways, is that likewise, that this is how your teachers are, is that they're extremely patient with you. They let you make mistakes. They let you make mistakes. And in a sense that they know that you're going to have to go through various stages in your life to reach the level of maturity that is needed. And so that sometimes they give you a little bit of slack. And then when it's going a little bit too far... Right? They reel you back in and to make sure that you don't go too far. And that generally speaking too is that they teach you with ishara, with indication. And sometimes you make a mistake and they smile and gently point you to what it is that you should have done. And subhanAllah, if we could look at these examples of how the great shiuch of Tarbiya raised their spiritual children and then apply those to our own children, it would be sufficient. And la hawla all of us fall short in that. And this is the essence of the problem. All of it is there. All of it is there. And one of those mentioned here, Habib Ahmad Haddad, he was one of the great murabbis of this past Islamic century, in this past 50 years. And when you hear the stories of the Habib who visited us, Habib Omar bin Hamid, about his grandfather and how he would raise and train his students and how he would also that inculcate adab in his own children and in his grandchildren and in his family. Amazing examples of someone who was so incredibly gentle and beautiful and would teach, if possible, uh, by indication before he would explicitly mention something. And that... He would find ways that were very creative to that point his children and his grandchildren in the right direction. And sometimes he would see them that being conning towards certain things, and he would give them a little bit of slack. And instead of preventing them from doing those things, he would actually take a different approach and encourage them to do them if they're going to do them very well. And then sometimes that would throw those children off. And Habib Omar bin Hamad recounts a story that one time Habib Ahmad was being taken somewhere by one of his grandchildren. And this particular grandchild that liked to listen to music that was inappropriate to put on in front of Habib. And so Habib gets into the car and it is some singer singing, singing about their loved one and this type of thing. And and most likely in a very secular type context. And then all of a sudden, Habib Ahmed, as he's listening to the words, he starts crying and crying and crying. And that his grandson was almost trying to do it, like, I'm going to see what Grandpa's going to say if I put this on. He was trying to, like, prod him almost. And then Habib Ahmed looks at me and he says, do you hear what he's saying? Do you, he's speaking about his loved one. He took a complete spiritual meaning which was probably a song about some singer for their that loved one. And he took a spiritual meaning of his loved one, right? Which is the Prophet and the righteous and so forth and so on. And that then the person learned the lesson. 
in a very indirect way. But it wasn't by telling him, shut that music off. It was done in a very indirect way. And that these principles, Ya Allah, Allah, they're so easy to talk about. They're very nice to talk about. But putting them to practice in our lives is really the challenge. And khair inshallah. So he, but it's interesting to note here because there is definitely similarities. Everything we need actually lies in that. In understanding that teacher-student relationship of the true mashaykh of tarbiyah, not the ones that are still the traveling the path themselves, but the real shuyukh. And then understanding how the parent's relationship is with the child. So he says, My proclaiming of these bounties is partly in response to the above-mentioned verse of Qur'an. And then he says, but, they all, but also because they are directly relevant to the commentary and translation you have before you. Riyadatul Subyan is a classical Arabic text on educating children. As a teacher trained in the West, he's speaking about himself, I would not have had access to this book without the great men I have mentioned. I was born in Nottingham in the United Kingdom and spent the vast majority of my life in the Western world when my children were born and brought up. The influences of traditional Islamic teaching and Western education have undoubtedly shaped the way I brought up my own children. As they move on through adulthood, I can now reflect on this text in a way I could not have done without the experiences of my own development under the influences of my parents and teachers. The valuable pedagogical tradition I experienced through my studies, the 25 years of teaching learners of various ages from nursery children to adults in witnessing my own children grow and thrive. The book includes some traditional commentary as well as personal reflection to ensure the reader does not confuse my personal opinions with classical and well-established theological positions I have structured each section so that it contains four elements. First is the original Arabic text with an English translation. So he's given us his methodology and how he is approaching this uh, hundred plus line um, poem on raising children. So the first is the original Arabic text with an English translation. After the translation, there's a commentary showing the traditional understanding of the classical scholars of Islam. So first is the translation, second he'll do the traditional commentary. The third section has been entitled Reflections, as is my own personal interpretation. It is hoped that this complements and does not contradict traditional understanding in orthodox principles. The final section contains discussion questions that I have used in training sessions. The questions prompted closer examination of the text and an opportunity to relate the text to issues facing parents and teachers in a modern context, the discussion was further developed using a Facebook forum. For the traditional commentary, I have relied heavily on Simt al-Uqyan by Abdullah bin Ahmed Basodan. This is the book that I have here. Um, and the chapter in Al-Ghazali's Ihya al-Muddin on which the poem was based, and after which it was titled, it was titled T.J. Winter, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Marad, has produced a superb translation of this in his book, Al-Ghazali on Disciplining the Soul. For definitions and in trying to get the best translation of a particular word, he mentions here that he used Lisan al-Arab and Muqtar al-Sihah, as well as traditional commentaries of the Hadith. And then he explains that how he approaches uh, the, his mentioning the Hadith and the commentaries that he relies upon. And then he says, the psychological tradition that most influences my thinking is that of Vygotsky and Brunner, if I pronounced the first name right, Vygotsky and Brunner. I am happy to work in an environment where the rights and protection of the child are of paramount importance and where equality and inclusion are key principles. I hope these influences have enhanced and not corrupted my exposure to classical Islamic scholarship. I do not expect the reader to accept all that I have written here or to agree with me. However, I pray that each reader gains some benefit from this book and that it makes us all think about how we educate our children. I ask Allah to forgive my mistakes and for the reader to overlook any shortcomings and faults they find in this book. Ameen. Um, so unfortunately, I'm not going to be much help uh, about in relation to the psychological traditions. I don't have uh, hardly any, if any, training in this. Uh, maybe some of you, as we go through this, will have insights 
uh, into these authors or into other authors and, um, and other theories. So that's something that we can um, speak of as a group when we talk about these things. And if we find something to be um, that other than the way we see it, it's, it's perfectly fine for us to accept the good that this book has and to leave other things, if there's indeed things that uh, don't line up with how, the, how we see them. He then goes into a, 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 a brief uh, introduction of Imam Muhammad bin Ahmed al-Ramni. He is the one who, uh, who wrote the poem. And um, Imam al-Ramni is, is a, a great Egyptian scholar. He was born in a that, uh, village called Al-Ramla, in northwest of Cairo in 919 of the Hijra, 1513 of the Common Era. And um, he was to become a, a great Shafi scholar and mastered many of the other disciplines as well. He was a student of the acclaimed Zakaria Ansari, Sheikh al-Islam Zakaria Ansari. And um, he has uh, one of the most important books that is a commentary on Imam Nawi's Minhaj al-Talibin titled Nihayat al-Muhtaj Sharh al-Minhaj. Um, and um, this book still to this day is a very important book uh, for understanding the Shafi school and is used uh, for fatwa in certain places within the Muslim world. And um, that the poem that he wrote, uh, which is the poem that I have before me here, uh, has a total of 110 lines. And he bases it uh, on the section of the Imam Ghazali's book on disciplining the soul, there where he specifically speaks of uh, raising children. And um, he adds to it as well uh, other, uh, other things. And um, that he, he titled it, Bughyat al-Ikhwan fi Riyadat al-Subyan. And um, which is essentially that about that his, the desire of my brothers in the re- relation to the raising of children. And this was then commented on uh, much later uh, by the great Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Ba Sodan, who um, many of you know the Hadrat al-Bar that we recite uh, in the morning. Um, that was slightly abridged and added to by Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Ba Sodan. And um, it came to be known as the Hadra Bas Sodan, which is recited to this day um, in different places in Hadramot, in Tarim. It's recited in more than one place in the city, even though Tarim is a fairly, it's a smaller city. Uh, it's recited both in a, the house of Habib Abdul Rahman Mashur, which is right across from the house that Habib Omar bin Habib was born in, the house that now Habib Mashur, Habib Omar's oldest brother, lives in. It's recited right across from uh, his house, but it's also recited in Zanbal. And that the, the first qubba, or the dome, when you enter into the grave to the left, uh, that in it is buried uh, Imam Abu Bakr Bashumayla. So that it's recited in at least two places, if not more, in Tarim itself, let alone in Hadramot. And Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Basudan was a pr- prolific writer and a very great scholar. He um, that learned from uh, the teachers of his time. One of his greatest teachers was Habib that uh, Ahmed bin Abi Bakr, Habib Ahmed uh, bin Omar uh, bin Sumait. He was one of his one of his great scholars, and that this Habib was known to have um, that trained a large number of people during his time, and. Um, that he was also specifically known for that encouraging people to that give da'wah and to that uh, spread um, the teachings of an authentic understanding of Islam. Habib um, Ahmed bin Umar bin Sumayt, um, he passes in the year 1257. And the muhakkak of this book mentions something important, which really relates to what it is that we're trying to do here. So I wanted to mention this. And he says is that, that Ahmed Umm bin Sumayt lived in a time where there was all kinds of political turmoil. There was all kinds of problems. And part of his response to these political problems of his time was that <clears throat> he focused on training the upcoming generation. 
That was his focus. And that this really is the focus of our teachers stemming back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He was just especially renowned for renewing this way and that he was someone who had a very close connection to Imam al-Haddad even though he was a little over uh, about a century after him um, or about a half a century in terms of after him in terms of the main his, when he was studying and um, that it was the tradition of focusing on tarbiyah now the idea of tarbiyah you can translate it in many ways and we're going to get into the word itself uh, eventually um, but that it, it comes from the Yurabbi, which is has the, it connotates nurturing, it connotates um, raising, educating, um, inculcating that manners and virtue, all of these meanings uh, are included in this idea of tarbiyah, but also over an extended period of time, little by little, in an organic way. This is one of the important aspects of this concept of tarbiyah. It's not just something that is understood to be an overnight process. It takes time. Just as it takes time to that cultivate a particular type of tree or plant or whatever. Um, and it, likewise, when it comes to that raising an individual... But that the amazing thing is, is that the political problems that at a certain point stop. And what remains ultimately is these great individuals that have been nurtured and that have been raised at the hands of these great imams. And this is a constant throughout history. There's always going to be fitna. There's fitna in every time. And sometimes we think that there's never been fitna like the time in which we live. And to some, in some ways, okay, you might put forth that argument. Uh, but in other ways, is that which time did not have fitna? Which time did not have fitna? Every time has had fitna. From the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And there will remain fitna until the end of time. This is part of the world in which we live. There will always be fitna. And that if you imagine what it's like to grow up, in Bosnia in the 90s. Imagine what it's like to grow up in the other regions of the... Imagine what it's grow, like to grow up right now in Somalia. Imagine what it's like being right now in that Sana'a Yemen when half of the population is on the verge of famine. Like right now as we speak. These are not, you know, times like way past. Right now, immense tribulation. Um, but the whole point here is is that, yes, that you have to do everything possible to help people of the time in which you live. But the single most important thing of all, in times of ease and in times of hardship, and in times that you're experiencing immense tribulation, or it's relatively easy, is to focus on the building of people. This is the single most important thing of all, is that people have to be built, and that people have to be reared, and that's spiritually trained. And this is the greatest possible thing that you could leave behind. Not a building, a person. There's no meaning to a physical space if there's no reality to building people within that space. This is the whole reason you have a physical space. And sometimes we get too focused on the outward decorations. That yes, that you the purpose of decorating the place outwardly so that it has a sacred feel, that you're in a sacred environment that that points you in the right direction so you can or, orient your heart properly. But then what really matters is the state of your heart. I've been in very simple masajid. Marabtahaj's mosque literally was that trees that were cut down from the nearby forest with a tarp on top with ropes tying the uh, pieces of wood together and reeds in front. And it was one of the most spiritual mosques I've ever been in, in my life. That It's one of the most amazing places I've ever stepped foot in in my entire life. And the meanings of everything that we are talking about here were inculcated in every single moment that you, step, that you were in that particular space. And that their homes are very simple. 
that mostly they live in tents actually. There's only few homes that exist are really that worn out mud brick homes. Doors are missing and so forth and so on. Outwardly it doesn't look extremely beautiful. It's not a high culture of architecture. But all of the meanings that are being referred to here exist. And so the point is, is that what really matters is that we have a methodology, a way where we focus on raising individuals and inculcating in them virtue. This is the greatest possible thing that we could leave behind for the future generations of Islam, speaking in our specific context of the United States of America. And the, the proof of this is the Prophet himself, وسلم, Yes, that he left us the Qur'an, وسلم, yes, he left us his sunnah, but he also left us his companions, who understood the book of Allah Ta'ala and they understood the sunnah and they put it into practice and they were living its realities. And the Sahaba left us the Tabi'een. And the Tabi'een left us the Tabi'at Tabi'een. And that we still now are benefiting from people that were raised by their teachers, who were raised by their teachers. And this tradition exists till this very day and age. And the Mashaykh of Tarbiyah are many. They're not just one or two. There's hundreds if, and probably thousands. Most of them we don't even know about. Most of them tend to uh, are very inconspicuous and are hidden and are very unassuming. And they're the furthest people from being pretentious. And they're hard to identify. And sometimes that the way we think that they might look is that they don't turn out to look at all. And that without these people is that there would be significant gaps in people's access to the sunnah of our Prophet But alhamdulillah, they are still here with us and that they are in most places of the existing Muslim world despite uh, all of the problems that have happened in the past 100 to 200 years. They're still there. And you just have to search for them a little bit more. And what we hope is, is that they will also that frequent these lands in which we live and be easily accessible to our people here in the United States as well. So that he is the one, Habib Ahmed Omar bin Sumait, who encouraged Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Basodan to write the commentary on the poem of Imam Ramli. So that's why he was so significant in this. And um, that... Um, Anyhow, a lot more could be said about that, but you know, I, I really think that it's important that we understand this for the work that we are all trying to do here, is that ideally we want people to be built. This is what this is all about. And that an institution is only as good as the people that form that institution. We're not interested in names. We're not interested in slogans. We're not interested in that projecting an image that is far from the reality. Um, you know, yes, that I don't mind having a presence on the internet and in social media, but we want to do nothing other than share what it is that we are doing. If people want to benefit from it, ahlan wa sahlan. If people, it's not their cup of tea, so to speak, then there are many other ways that they can that learn and, and different people that they can learn from. But we want to that jealously guard what it is that we're trying to do here. And we hope that, as there are many other examples of it, uh, most of them are off the grid in the United States of America, but we hope that it increases because we believe this to be the single most important thing of all for the future of Islam and these lands in which we live. May Allah ta'ala give us tawfiq. So, that he then goes on, and I'll close on this point, to explain the title that Imam Ramli gave his poem, uh, which is Riyadatul Sibyan. And he says, training boys or educating children? He puts a question mark. And he says, Riyadah means physical training, domestication of an animal, sport, mathematics, relaxation, or spiritual exercise. He gives many different possible meanings uh, of the word. Um, the origin of the word Rialda is a piece of land that has been cultivated. A quality that underlies the concept of training, mathematics, and spiritual exercises that they all require effort and exertion in a repetitive, a, a, a repetitive fashion 
such that uh, until such a time that the skill concerned is mastered. A garden does not become a realda except through hard work. An athlete excels after rigorous training. Mathematics is mastered by repeating drills and exercises. A spiritual novice rises in rank based on his spiritual exercises. So this is a, a really that neat word that realda, realda to subyan. And it's also the work that's used, the word that is used for uh, that spiritual discipline, realda to nafs. And so um, realda is used in modern, modern Arabic as sports, realda, or exercise, sports or exercise. And um, um, that uh, the obsession that many people have with exercise nowadays is usually for more worldly reasons, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, to exercise is important, to be in good shape is not only fine, it's good, and that it's something that our dean encourages, there's no doubt. Uh, but being in shape for the sake of being in shape, disconnected again from religious meaning, that's where we would put a bit of a question mark there. How useful really is it to solely focus on the physical body if you're neglecting the spirit? What we want is both in tandem. And so this idea of that exercise, the true exercise in a religious sense is spiritual exercise. And so that this is the idea of the discipline that you impose upon yourself day in and day out. And that so it has this idea of training, it has this idea of struggle, it has this idea of repetition, all of these things that were mentioned. And just as if you're going to cultivate land, there's a certain process that you have to go through. If you're going to cultivate an individual, likewise, there is a process that you have to go through. And so thus that we get the word realda. And then we have the word subyan. So he says an important term used frequently in this commentary related to realda, the word tarbiya, uh, which he says here is development. It is used for both gardening and nurturing young children. The imagery of the two words Rialda and Tarbiya in their gardening context are relevant to my choice of title. Education is more than just training. It is more than just nurturing. I hope that through the commentary and reflection the reader will begin to understand and perhaps appreciate the choice of the title. And he, what he means by that is uh, that how he chose to title his book, which was Educating Children. Um... It is important because it sets the tone for the approach adopted in the commentary and reflection. Sabian is the plural of sabi, which means boy. A literal translation of the title might be training boys. And some have suggested I should have taken a literal approach in this book. It is clear that the address is very much to the father about how he should develop manly qualities in his son. However, I have adopted the more general title, Educating Children, as it is clear that the lessons are applicable to both genders and that grammatically boys can imply boys and girls. May Allah grant success to the reader, producers, and translator of this work, for only through him is there enabling ability. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is his brief introduction. And inshallah ta'ala, we will get into the text, uh, the next class that we have uh, next month. Bidnilai ta'ala. May Allah ta'ala bless us in this affair, open up the doors of understanding, and to that lets us all to really benefit from this inshallah ta'ala and to implement these principles in our life and to have that a not only a better understanding but to that be able to implement a methodology that benefits all of those that are around us most importantly our children sallallahu alayhi wa sallam alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen